You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 438, Parallax. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek in order to explore the morals, meanings, and messages. This week, we'll be a pair of hosts for Parallax, the one in which there's a pair of voyagers and someone has to sort out which one to take home. We'll discuss all that and more as soon as I tell you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now let's get back to the journey with John Champion with this week's trivia. Well, thank you, Trivia, for this week's episode, Parallax. We have a story by Jim Trombetta, and there's a name that we've heard before. He got his start in the 80s with a couple of credits on Miami Vice, and in the 90s, he turns in five stories for Deep Space Nine, the last of which was in season two with Playing God. This episode of Voyager is his final Trek credit, and it's actually his final professional writing credit overall. We have a teleplay by Brannon Braga. Well, we mentioned in the last episode that Brannon was keenly interested in how Voyager's development was coming along. While it was Michael Piller, Rick Berman, and Jerry Taylor who shaped the pilot, Brannon was partly on vacation when Caretaker was written, but he still had some say in what made it to air. As a producer and longtime writer for the franchise, though, it was understandably quick that he would have his own writing credit on the series. The episode was directed by Kim Friedman. Hey, it's, uh, it's been a while since we've talked about Kim. She got her start as a director in the 70s, mostly on sitcoms, and she even directed eight episodes of The Love Boat. Her first foray into science fiction was directing DS9, where she turned in six episodes between seasons two and five. She will be on Voyager for a total of four episodes. And you may remember way back from trivia in a previous mission log that Kim's daughter runs the Instagram account at Crazy Jewish Mom with the texts that they exchange. And it's hilarious. Go check it out. Now, originally, this story was called Ghost Ship, and it started with the pitch of another ship being trapped in a singularity, and Voyager has to go get it out. That changed over time, and some of the effects' heavy needs were pared down a bit. And really, Brandon's goal here was to start shaping the crew early on and to use moments in this episode to firm up the core cast, getting the Maquis crew integrated into Starfleet. That all took shape once he decided that the trap ship was really Voyager itself instead of an alien vessel. And here we are, just one regular episode into the season, and we have a bottle show. Now, it makes sense. Uh, a lot of time and money were spent on the pilot, so you got to start making some of that up. We have our second 
in the crew spotlight, Robert Beltran. It's time to meet Chicote. Robert is from Bakersfield, California, and his parents immigrated from Mexico. He did go for a theater arts degree, and uh, pretty early in his career, he started getting cast in some important movies. His debut was in Louis Valdez's 1981 film Zoot Suit, and by 1982, he was working with Paul Bartel on the cult classic Eating Raul. Robert played Raul, by the way. Over the years, he worked with Bartel many more times, and he started picking up guest and recurring roles on TV, uh, like his gig the year before Voyager started as Lieutenant Soto on Models, Inc. In addition to his non-Trek work, Robert has returned to the universe a few times since Voyager. He was in the short comedy Roddenberry on Patrol, the fan film Renegades, and he has a current gig as Chakotay on Star Trek Prodigy bringing it all full circle. Now let's meet our guest stars. Josh Clark plays Lieutenant Carey. He might look slightly familiar. He had a small role in the TNG season one episode, Justice. And all those years later, he returns to the franchise as Carey. We did see him in Caretaker, and he will be back. Uh, Now, is he the same character that we saw at Tactical in Justice? Well, that's just for your headcanon to decide. And we also meet Seska, played by Martha Hackett. The name may sound familiar, but this is a new character for her. We did first see Martha in DS9 as the Romulan to rule in The Search, Parts 1 and 2. She also turns up in a couple of Trek video games, and we will see more of Seska as this becomes a recurring character for the first three seasons, plus a a little more as we get toward the end. Welcome to the Delta Quadrant. No Klingons, no Romulans, no Andorians, no lawyers and shower curtains. Things are gonna get weird on us real quick. Prologue. In a bit of an outburst, Belana Torres has punched Lieutenant Carey right in the face, sending the engineer to sickbay. Chakotay confronts his friend and crewmate in her quarters with the warning that she's got to get it together if she wants to avoid time in the brig, and especially if she wants to be chief engineer, which, by the way, is totally Chakotay's idea that he's pitching to the captain. Surprise! Act 1. The senior staff meet to give their updates, and things are tough. Not all of Voyager's systems are operating, which leads to some novel suggestions. Neelix and Kess crash the meeting and have the excellent idea of setting up a hydroponic garden to grow food which Neelix will cook. Tom Paris is given the task of learning some field medicine to be of use where the holographic doctor can't go. Chakotay has his crew suggestions, like putting Balana in charge of engineering, to which Janeway seems more than a little surprised. They're interrupted by a violent shudder, a distortion in the space-time continuum. Janeway knows right away it's a Type 4, which is uh, at least worse than a Type 3. There's a transmission coming from a vessel trapped within, but it's so distorted nobody can make it out, and they can't get too close to the ship without endangering Voyager. Chakotay calls up engineering, and Balana has an idea— rigging up a kind of subspace tractor beam that could cut through all the distortion and tow the stranded ship out. But just to be sure, and going through the chain of command, Captain Janeway asks Lieutenant Carey what he thinks. It could work, so he's in charge of the project. 
So now Janeway needs to have a word with Chakotay in private. Yeah, you do not make an end run around the captain, especially when it looks like Chakotay is treating the former Maquis as his crew and not part of the Voyager crew. He says Janeway's not making it any easier, not allowing any of the Maquis to have positions of responsibility except for him. Chakotay sticks by his guns. The captain won't ever have the loyalty of the Maquis if she doesn't show them respect. Janeway dismisses her first officer. And that, my friends, is how permission to speak freely sometimes gets ruined for everyone. Act 2. Cass stops by sickbay to pick up some soil samples that she'll use in setting up the hydroponics bay, but while there, she notices something is off about the doctor. He has shrunk. From the time she entered, he's 10 centimeters shorter, and a diagnostic reveals the same thing. Something must be wrong with the holographic projector, but the ops team, okay, that's just Harry Kim, is too busy to deal with it just now, because just now the tractor beam is online and ready for a test. It works perfectly, until the moment it doesn't. The singularity starts pulling Voyager toward it, and with the tractor beam on at full, the power fluctuations threaten to rip the ship apart. They'll have to shut everything down, and Captain Janeway decides to rely on her local guide, that would be Neelix, who has a handle on some locals who may be able to help. So they lay in a course for the Illidaria system. During their travel time, Belana is summoned to the captain's ready room. Janeway wants to get to know her engineering chief candidate a little better, and it doesn't go very well. Belana admits right away that she doesn't think she can work under the conditions of a Starfleet ship. Maybe she just doesn't have what it takes to work well with others, to be in command, and she quit the Academy because she wanted nothing to do with Starfleet then or now. She storms off in a huff. Just as the doctor requests a video call with the captain, he's still shrinking. Nobody has come down to fix his hollow emitters, and what's more, he's had calls from nine crew members who are having headaches and other symptoms. Janeway says that could be related to the quantum singularity that's been sending out these spatial distortions, something that the doctor says he should have been told about as soon as it happened. He's right. But there's no time to debate it, because, speak of the quantum, there's another violent shudder to the ship. And even after traveling so far away, Voyager finds itself strangely in front of the exact same singularity it had left. Act 3. They are right back where they started. Captain Janeway orders that Voyager warp away, but no matter what direction or how fast, that singularity is right in front of them. She calls a meeting of senior staff to go over all the data, including Lieutenant Carey and, at Chicote's insistence, Belana Torres. Those two are still jockeying for position, with Carey telling Torres he's still in charge. The tension between them is fodder for gossip on the rest of the ship, including Ensign Kim, who's trying to get more out of Tuvok. In mid-conversation, Kim is struck with a sudden painful headache, same as more than 60 other crew members, and the doctor has no handle on how to solve it, and he's still shrinking. Also struggling to find answers are the senior staff. They're stuck with what to do, but it's Torres who has an idea relating what's happening with the doctor to the rest of the ship. If the phase alignment of his emitters is being distorted by the spatial anomaly, then they could set up a damping field. If they're right, the same kind of field could be applied to the ship's sensors and allow them to hear from the other ships stuck out there in the event horizon. 
Torres and Carey are given the order to work together on that problem, giving way to a knowing nod between Chakotay and Janeway as the meeting is dismissed. The experiment works, and the distortion gives way to a message from the other ship. It's Janeway's own voice from earlier, and it's Voyager stuck in the event horizon. Act 4. Here's where it goes wibbly-wobbly. That other Voyager out there is them, stuck in space, but it's more of a reflection of them. Captain Janeway sent the opening hail nine hours ago to that ship, but there they are. Yeah, it's, it's weird, and Janeway explains that in temporal mechanics, sometimes effect can precede the cause. That's all interesting in theory, but the reality is that they've got about nine hours to escape this thing until the anomaly crushes their ship. Presumably, they made a hole in it with their first encounter, which should be a weak spot where they can keep muscling their way through, and in order to see it, they'll flood the area with warp particles. So they do, and they find a rupture, and it's too small for the ship to fit through. Plan B. Torres says they could make the rupture bigger if they could force it open with a Dacon beam, but Voyager is too far away to make that happen. A shuttle will do the trick, and the best people to do the job are Janeway and Torres. With a few minutes to spare, Bellana takes a moment to open up to Janeway and apologize for their earlier tense discussion. She admits she quit the Academy because she knew she couldn't make it in Starfleet. But Janeway says she's selling herself short. Her old professor left a letter in Torres's record stating that he'd support her if she ever reapplied, which is news to Torres. There were a lot of people at the Academy who saw her potential. The shuttle gets closer to the rift, and those violent distortions get stronger and stronger. With the Dacon beam activated, though, they're able to open up that rift barely wide enough for Voyager to fit through, but all the banging around has caused another problem. The shuttle communications are knocked out. And when the shuttle heads back to rendezvous, there's Voyager and another Voyager. One's real, the other is a reflection, but they've only got time to make one choice. Impulsively, Torres says it's the one to port, but Janeway reasons it's the one to starboard, and, well, thank goodness she was right. On board, the rupture is getting smaller and smaller, which leaves them with one chance to force their way through. It's a bumpy trip, but Voyager emerges from the other side. Voyager will be fine, and especially since she's got a new chief engineer, that would be Balana Torres, she's got a job ahead of her getting the warp engines back online, and taking command of her crew. That means clearing the air with Lieutenant Carey as well, who offers his congratulations. In sickbay, the doctor is still lower priority, though. He's shrunk down to maybe half a meter, standing in a chair, just begging for someone to come have a look at his hollow emitters. The end. Nice tight recap, John. Because, Thank you. you know, we're just a pair of guys talking about a parallax. I loved your joke. I'm stealing it. I'm flat out just shamelessly stealing Wait. your way. Okay. I, I, I had two friends. When I lived in Chicago, I had two friends who were going for a uh, simultaneous doctorate degree. And part of their gimmick was just referring to each other as a paradox. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Boom. Yeah. Thank you, John. Uh, John's going to be here all night. Uh, make sure you try the veal. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, tip your waiter. Waitress. Thank you. Yes. So here's a tip. Uh, yeah. The doctor may want to change his bedside manner just a little bit. 
Um, and I'm sure that that's yeah. going to be part of his character development. But no one does a just a, a, a brusque and completely fed up doctor the way that Picardo does the EMH. Just it, 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 shoving yeah. Carrie down, broken nose on face, doesn't care. You're my patient. I'm going to treat you. Just let me do my thing. Right. It's like a mechanic fixing a car. Yeah. You just, yeah, you're just like banging things into place and, you know. I can't wait for the first person to say, like, is this going to hurt, Doc? And he's going to say, absolutely, excruciatingly. Now, yeah. sit down. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. Um, and, you know, hey, I, I do have to say it's uh, it's early. I don't know if it's too early in the run or maybe just the right timing in the run here uh this is our second time in the delta quadrant with uh with voyager and there's already talk of mutiny from the former mckee in a darker star trek that would probably be a constant undercurrent but um yeah here here they are just being pretty open with it yeah you never know how the winds are gonna kind of blow right now with a crew yeah. and the way that the crew is all mixed in. Uh, one thing I did like, though, at the very beginning during the cold opening is mm-hmm. a lot of different uniform zipper pole heights, you know, across the different crew members. But I'll tell you one thing, man. Yeah. Tim Russ or Tuvok, he looked as neat as a pin. And I think yeah. that just wanted, like, between he and Chakotay, you saw one who was, okay, I'll zip this thing up. I don't care. I'll walk around, get things done. Tuvok was like the complete opposite. It's like, I want to show you exactly how exacting the discipline of Starfleet is. And I think that's kind of starts the the tone of the episode a little bit. You know, that that is a really interesting detail. And I, I have to wonder, was that something decided early on by that combination of, you know, producer, not so much writer in this case, but, but a, a producer writer like Brannon or Michael Piller Um and wardrobe and or actors to say like well okay this character would wear this uniform this way whereas another character would wear the uniform a different way in tng we didn't see that the only difference is that Worf had his bandolier on right you know and then in ds9 we rarely saw any variation in the uniforms it just depends on where cisco wanted to put his communicator that day (laughs) right right either on his heart or underneath his armpit so it really depends yeah exactly but we're 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 past that we're we've moved past that completely different uniforms here yes yeah Uh, but no but it it, it, it's a good because if it is a decision it's a good decision It, it it says like oh okay these are characters coming at this from different places in their lives plus we're in this far off place kind of all the rules not though the rules are suspended but um that sort of common goal that kind of understanding may be shaken up a little bit here so yeah and that just kind of again it speaks to the discipline levels or expectations of the crew speaking of Discipline expectations. So <laughs> Neelix just barges into a staff meeting, which I think is hilarious because he's yes. not Starfleet. He's not Maki. Yeah. He's just Neelix. Like, yeah. And his feelings were hurt. Like, yeah. Nick, someone want to tell me I'm, I'm, I, I'm chief Talaxian on this ship. <laughs> it's like senior Talaxian. She's you senior. Yeah. Um, I love yeah. that. I also loved how Janeway just says, yeah, you want the responsibility for growing food? Take it. Yeah, I, I got a ship to yeah. get home. Take your food yeah. and go. <laughs> well, 
Well, uh, okay, so I like uh, I love that she does that. She uh, everything in Janeway in that scene is played out right. Mm-hmm. She's surprised that they come in. She graciously welcomes them in. All right, empowers them to go do this. But she also says, like, yes, you're welcome here this time. Yeah. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. it's still sort of uh, asserting that power correctly. Right. You know? They didn't know, uh, but they do yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It, there is, uh, oh, I, this is a weird one, and it feels a little strange even to bring it up. There's this awkward bit of writing and blocking where I feel like they were kind of going for a joke. And see if you remember this. Picture this in your head. Mm-hmm. So they encounter the event horizon with its other ship, and then Cass goes, What's an event horizon? And then Neelix literally starts walking her around the bridge with his hand on her neck, mm-hmm. explaining to, to lax explaining. <laughs> I don't know, mansplaining, you know. And it, it's just awkward. Yeah. And, and I know that they're trying to go for this little bit of humor that, oh, look, he talks too much until somebody shuts him up. But it, it's almost like that meme of, you know, somebody at a at a game, it's like a big beefy guy and he's, you know, he got his hand in his girlfriend's face explaining something and it, it just, it, it makes me a bit uncomfortable. It's the well actually, well actually. Yeah. 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 yeah but yeah, also, yeah. John, this yeah. could be an opportunity to to turn this into, well, you see Timmy moment. We haven't had a you see Timmy moment in a long okay. time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, well okay. I, and that little, that, that kind of weird, awkward exposition moment, like you always have to have those, and particularly in a show like Star Trek, where you have these big ideas you have to get across succinctly, which I'll come back to later. Yeah, it's not the only one uh, in this episode. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So, so you do have to have those, but... It was strange to make that a character moment and particularly to make it that character moment. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the doctor here a moment because 2,000 medical resources and 47 physicians, <laughs> the, as he says, it, the embodiment of modern medicine. And this is just the coolest idea to me because if you go way back in mission log history and you know there have been conversations about kind of the promise of ai and i even remember you know this is years ago talking about how cool it is you could have a computer like watson win jeopardy because watson is just pulling from all these different resources to to try to come up with what is likely the best and more importantly correct answer here and i think in a medical field that is like just the world is crying out for that kind of thing. Right. That is the future that I want to see. Mm-hmm. Okay. With that, though, it's like if you have all of these resources at your disposal, I mean, I think that it's – you expect that to work, right? I mean, you know, yeah. you, you have these holog- – you have you have Moriarty, like the you know, Sherlock Holmes' yeah. greatest, you know, uh, criminal uh, antagonist and enemy and, mm-hmm. you know, with – every single ounce of Sherlock Holmes data like pumped into this character to the point where it becomes sentient and escapes the holodeck. Yeah. You know I mean? Like, I yeah. Know. I mean, why wouldn't this guy be like literally the, the embodiment of like modern medical science? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's funny that, okay, he doesn't have bedside manner, but he's very sensitive, <laughs> which, oh, yes. which by the way, is very interesting when Kess refers to him as a person, mm-hmm. which is a, and, uh, which is a lovely little detail. And, and it was also, I thought in that first one, uh, how she recognizes him shrinking because that first shot from the bookcase or from the shelves is behind. Right. 
and then you switch the camera around to see him on the other side and you can actually see that difference so yeah i, mean, I thought that was a nice little detail i don't know how sharp your eyes are my eyes aren't mm-hmm. that sharp i really couldn't tell if somebody shrank 10 centimeters in front of me no but, no no i'm I, i'm I, I wouldn't be able to call it but maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's important to okampen sensitivity that may pay off mm-hmm. later it's just one of those Look, small details where like that's interesting I mean, look, we have the the misfortune of being raised in a country where we abandoned the uh, the metric system. Uh, so already that's very hard to tell. And I try. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I try. But even with my imperial measurements, I'm terrible at that kind of like if I'm driving down the street and I've got, uh, you know, iOS maps telling me where to go and it says, you know, turn left in 500 feet or a quarter mile. I don't understand those distances. I'm <laughs> just like, <laughs> like I, I, I don't, is that 10 seconds from now? I, I have no idea. So uh, you just tell me where the light is and where to turn and then I'll do it. Yeah. Like half so. a foot I could probably get, but I don't know. What is yeah. 10 centimeters? What is that? Some, somewhere between half a foot and the length of this room. Okay. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. the, then Sorry, uh, yeah. our EU European friends out there or yes. friends across the sea that use <laughs> the metric system. I'm hey, sorry. we tried. We, we tried for one moment in yeah. like 1979 and then it just failed. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, all right, speaking of Cass, by the way, and how observant she is, she does go into the doctor's uh, sickbay there to ask him for a soil sample, a, a nitrogenated soil sample. Can I just remind everybody that she's setting up a hydroponics bay? And a whole lot more. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, I want to see the whole lot more yeah. because hydroponics, by definition, means you don't need soil. So maybe, she, throw that out maybe she's using it for something that Neelix needs. Right, I'm, I look, I, I'm, I'm just saying I'm the butt actually guy now. <laughs> so, <laughs> but actually, uh, I really like how how Chakotay stands up for Torres in representing her her agency in the department heads meeting. Bring in Carrie, hmm. bring in Torres to let the captain decide whose ideas are going to win the day because we're trying to get home here. It's not about rank. It's not about privilege. It's not about position. It's about who has the best idea. And I like how he fights for that. I really, really do. Hmm. Um, I also like the fact that uh, we saw kind of like what Tuvok was up to when he was hanging out with the Maquis when Janeway said, Tuvok got all of your records. And yeah. I read all the data that he was able to get from underneath your noses. I thought that was pretty cool. That was a clever detail. Yeah. I, I dug that. Oh, and, oh, come on. All right. Uh, the doctor is on channel 47. Ooh. Guys, I, retroactively, I say this to you writing this in the 1990s, lay off 47 for a minute. You get one per episode. Right. That's that's what you get. And that doesn't mean you have to use it in every episode. Mm-hmm. But if you do, you only get one. So there's an interesting thing that it was a it was a cut scene where they cut uh, from one act to another act. Now, it's when they mm-hmm. it's when they realize that they're staring at Voyager on the event horizon and they're pinging basically their message back to each other. Yeah. Prior to the commercial cut, it was standard lighting after the commercial cut. It was red alert lighting. I did not notice that. But there was no red alert actually ordered by the captain for whatever reason. So in the background, you could see on the security station, the red alert uh, lighting going off. Not necessarily klaxons, but it went from bright to dark with the red accents of red alert. Oh, interesting. I didn't notice that. So we we have to assume that either that is something you're supposed to fill in with your head. Could have been a uh, scene that was shot. Right. 
and not used. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of the uh, how Voyager works, um, it, there was, it was such a tiny thing that stuck out to me when uh, Carrie says that they go up to that meeting on deck one. Mm-hmm. And now deck one is where the bridge is. That's where the ready room is and wh- or wherever this conference room is, you know, somewhere bridge adjacent. I, Voyager counting its decks from top to bottom with numbers rather than letters is an interesting idea because I, I haven't honestly paid that close attention to other ships in the fleet. But just thinking back, okay, uh, I believe you've got decks on the Enterprise uh, labeled with uh, – and I'm talking to old school Enterprise – labeled with letters because most often on ships, you know, you got A deck on down, A, B, C, D, going from top down. On a lot of modern ships, you're actually going like a building from a number up. So you starting at the bottom and you, you count numbers all the way up. And there was a time, remember, in Star Trek V, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry to bring it up. Use the got, rockets. Yeah, you got <laughs> deck 78 on a 15-deck <laughs> ship or 18-deck ship yeah. or whatever it is. So it, it's a weird little bit of inconsistency. Although if, you know, if people tell me like, no, 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 we've been counting top down with numbers on X number of ships, or does it just apply to certain uh, uh, classes of vessels? Mm-hmm. But it seems it, it just seems a little weird that Star Trek has not had a, you know, kind of died in the wool consistency about that sort of thing. Well, it kind of goes so. hand in hand with uniforms, new uniforms, new deck yeah, nomenclature, sure. you know. Bada bing. Sure. Bada bing. I'm just saying, like, if I were assigned from a ship that was counting bottom up and then top down, it would take me at least a couple of weeks to get used to that. It would take <laughs> it would take me an understanding of the metric system to get used to that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably so. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. So remember that moment when Neelix was Timmy explaining to Kess what the spatial anomaly is? Well, yes. Tom pretty much has that same moment later on where he literally like recaps everything in this episode right to the point where like let me get this straight <laughs> because a lot of exposition a lot of kind of like you know techno babbly stuff happens so he's just kind of yeah. like whoa 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 everyone catch up right as soon as i say let me get this straight right and okay, explanation but okay but <laughs> to their credit to their credit they had a, a decent analogy in there with the uh, the reflection on the ice you know mm-hmm. and it felt very natural for him to just say, like, you know, what am I getting wrong here? Well, sure, <laughs> sure, sure. And, and yeah. acting like, wait, am I the only guy at the table here who doesn't get it? Because in that moment, he is us. Right. And, and, and that that was good. But that's that's a better use of that bit of necessary exposition. But it's like <laughs> your 47 <laughs> moment. Like, you should only really have one of those. In yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 You yeah. Know, because too exactly. many is like that's just an ask too many to be like, oh, nice job. Just we're just getting splained the entire yes. episode. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, right. Trek splained. Hey, uh, look, dumb idea, and and I I know retroactively it it doesn't do any good in asking, but uh, could the shuttle have just piloted itself through the rift and just followed Voyager? I don't or know. Just. Voyager go and like the shuttle say, hey, we're done. And it, th- that'd be the plan from then on. Like, hey, you punch a hole through that thing and we're just going to follow you. 
<laughs> or, it, you know, there might have been another way to figure out, uh, you know, how to get that thing back on board. Anyway, you know, I, I don't want to rewrite the episode. Not not, not at that point. Although it's kind of funny, you know, Janeway saying sometimes you'd have to punch your way through. Cut to, you know, it's punching through and the ship is being torn apart and people are knocked around right? the bridge and the shields fail. It's like, okay, all right, stop punching. <laughs> Seriously, just like a moment, stop punching. I'll tell you what, I think... Even before the warp engines, maybe Carrie and, and Balana need to kind of team up and take care of the inertial dampeners because those things got a workout. I mean, I've never seen a crew get shaken around that hard since maybe since the, the Enterprise D bridge, like, you know, hit Viridian 3, right? I mean, Ooh, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, they were getting tossed yeah. around on the floor, rolling around. I mean, Beltran was like going for the handholds I and mean, he was selling it. So here's something funny, though, that I left out of trivia, which is that the director, Kim Friedman, uh, sent all the actors a videotape of an episode of uh, DS9 that she had directed in which there was I don't, maybe on Defiant or something like shaking stuff falling apart and she was like here's what I want you to do hmm. like here's how serious this is when we get to this point so dutifully the actors watched it and, oh, okay we're gonna throw ourselves around she should have said so, uh, showed him that you know the one scene from the Wrath of Khan where that one Briz crew member goes oh like across the screen. Yes. yes. Right? Yeah. Oh, God, that's the one. Selling yes. it. That's selling it, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I also really like how Torres, when she's finally promoted to chief engineer, handles Carrie so graciously at the end. That's a nice learning moment for Torres. It's good character building. And it also, and I'm going to get to this point a bit later on, it also shows how Starfleet treated her and how she learned from that moment and didn't want to treat him in that same fashion. I, well, I look forward to that part of our discussion. Welcome to engineering. That's a nice nose you have there. It would be a shame if anything had to happen to it. Hey, we will get right back to Parallax in a moment. But first, a big thank you to everyone who has joined us on the Mission Log Patreon at patreon.com slash Mission Log. Norm, so much happening. So much happening and so much to be thankful for. So many pe people to be thankful for. Uh, it's, it's really wonderful to see the community grow and grow in leaps and bounds, probably to the expectations that, John, have been exceeded f from both you and I since we started this. And it's really heartwarming because it's really taken a momentum and a life of its own where our fans and our friends have become these great communities. They've come together. They've found, like, interests. And I think that they're finding friendships both on and off, being in Discord, being online, and yeah. even meeting with each other in real life. It's really, really wonderful to see. Yeah, and look, you know, we've made a real commitment to uh, make sure that we're there to hang out and chat and do things like our weekly uh, Mission Log After Dark, where we get to have a discussion about that week's episode with all of you. Um, and, you know, look, honestly, sometimes it's about the episode. Sometimes it's just a hangout, and that's okay, too, because we love seeing everybody. Uh, but also putting exclusive content in Patreon that is just for you. Doesn't mean that we're putting anything less in the main mission log feed, but it means that there is even more to be found uh, when you sign up at Patreon. So a uh, big, big thank you to some of our more recent members who have joined. Jane, Morgan, Daniel, Nicholas, Doug, Ryan, Robert, 
Tim, Ricardo, thank you all. That is just the tip of the iceberg, and uh, we are so grateful that you have joined us there and uh, have shown your faces in our Discord, which is exclusive to our Patreon members. All right, Norman, you brought it up in the last segment, and and I feel like this is really the biggest point of discussion in this episode, but it it has so much to do with this relationship, this professional relationship with uh, Torres and Janeway, and how, how Torres is finding her life now on Voyager and under the Starfleet rules and regulations, and now getting promoted to being chief engineer. Um, so I, right off the bat, I, I'm sort of looking at this from the production reality, and I feel like this is where story and production are having mm-hmm. a run-in. Bolana is a great character, and we know that she is one of the characters, well, one of the actors in the main cast. We're only two episodes in, though, and she has punched someone in the face and now she's getting promoted. It was an interesting reveal to get to know her in Caretaker just a little bit. You know, we see her in the context of the McKee ship. We see her in the context of that Ocampa kind of medical facility. And she's she's losing it. And she even says to, uh, to Kim, like, you know, being half Klingon, that is not all it's right. cracked up to be. She, she's she got some issues like dealing with her own uh, mm-hmm. impulses, you know. So this is all very interesting stuff in the background uh, for her. But I'm I, I, I kind of wish that we got to sit with that longer before giving her this promotion. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, look, there was a certain elegance to putting Chakotay in his Mm -hmm. position. And we justify that pretty well, that he has the background. He's been through Starfleet Academy. He has some seniority, even though he's done this thing, which is borderline criminal, (laughs) you know, but we're bringing him in 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 this case. And yes, Janeway is making a statement to her now mixed crew by saying, here's somebody who is my second in command who is from you. And I feel like, as I said in last episode, that was a great moment in spelling out that Chakotay owes Tom Paris his life. I think that was masterfully handled. And I love Chakotay slapping down his mutinous Maquis crewmates. But <laughs> but we get to this point with Bellana. Would it have killed us to give her a little more time before she becomes chief engineer. You know, that's a that's a good point. And I think maybe in the in the serialization of of Voyager so far from caretaker, you know, to parallax. I did not pay attention to the start date at the very beginning, so I don't know how much time has passed between now and then. I think that for the sake of exposition and the sake of getting getting everyone in their roles very early, I think that it's I can understand why. I understand and I completely agree with having her earn her way into the the position a little bit more. Maybe the the shuttlecraft uh, trip and and being able to fix the problem with Janeway and signs their way through it. Maybe that was a really good stepping stone to building that trust with Janeway. But I really think that they're trying to establish a certain hierarchy of how Janeway needs to trust Chakotay, how Chakotay needs to, you know, establish that trust 
down the chain of command very quickly just in order to keep the story moving along. I don't really know like how how stretched out the Maquis storyline is going to be. I've only really seen this mm-hmm. kind of once, so I don't really remember mm-hmm. it. A lot of this stuff is new to me too. But what I do like about Janeway's decision to promote, uh, to promote Bellana is she is accepting that she made a snap judgment in error because she is a Starfleet elitist at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. She is Starfleet... Mm-hmm. She said this to Chakotay, Starfleet officers have worked their entire lives to earn their commissions. How am I supposed to ask them to accept a Maki as their superior just because circumstances forced us together? That in and of itself is an oxymoron because they earned their commissions by discipline and the captain orders the discipline to her favor. So if they are true Starfleet officers, they have to accept Chakotay being a Maquis officer and a Starfleet officer because that's what she orders them to do. That's what Starfleet is accepting. That's, that's her definition of yeah. the discipline of the commission that they've earned. So she's like, I don't care how they feel. I'm ordering them to accept yeah. you. Period. That should be good enough for Chakotay, understanding the rules of command, and it should be good enough for all the other officers, understanding the discipline of the chain of command that Janeway is establishing at the beginning. But in, in empowering Balana and then promoting her is basically saying, I made a mistake saying that. It's time for me to think differently. Well, which is all well and good, but uh, so let, let me phrase it this way. I mean, take Starfleet out of it, take the Maquis out of it, and regardless of the situation, you have somebody in a position of command, position of power, with this opportunity to create or, or reshape the structure within her mm-hmm. command, okay, so how much weight then do we apply to inherent skill and her background in engineering and her natural talent versus the other really important skill, which is command ability? It is leadership ability. So, uh, for example, you know, Captain Janeway doesn't have to be the best pilot. She doesn't have to be the best scientist. She doesn't have to be the best any one particular role because you have people like Paris and like Tuvok under her command who are giving her Mm -hmm. good information in order to make good decisions. So Janeway's strength has to be somebody who has leadership ability. And... Torres and trust, trust and is a trust, big yeah, part yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah. Trust is a big part yeah. of that. And again, th- this is sort of this weirdly academic conversation because it, the reality is, say, TV show that has to move its star, one of its stars, yeah. into the role that she was written to play. <laughs> you know, but if we treat it as a real world thing for a minute, doing something like having that meeting where you have both Carrie and Torres there, fine. You force them to work together. They have to work together. Either you're putting right. Bolana in a position where she has to, uh, where where the person under her, Carrie, has to accept her leadership and not be a jerk about it, or flip it, and it's the same situation. You know, they they both have to learn that ability, or maybe there's another candidate that we haven't even looked at yet who who has you know the stronger leadership ability. So I, I mean, but. Both Carrie and Balana, I mean, they, they, they both did each other wrong. I mean, obviously, Balana did it physically, and Carrie did it almost um, 
passive aggressively mm-hmm. saying like, hey, he goes, sorry, you're not going to be in the leadership meeting because you're not a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. So that that's, you know, that was a dig yeah. at her. And rightfully so, because, you know, he's probably still smarting from the broken <laughs> nose, yeah. you know, that almost ended up, you yeah. know, uh, hemorrhaging yeah, his brain. Yeah. Or uh, to Cote's to, to yeah. description. So, but in the end, though, I think that with Bellana in place, I think what Janeway is saying is we can't afford to look down our noses as Starfleet officers to people that have the potential of doing better. After Janeway read Torres's file and read the, the chief engineer's notes on how brilliant Torres was as a student who had never got the chance, maybe it's because maybe too many Starfleet people pushed her down mm-hmm. and kind of covered her brilliance up to the point where they gaslit her mm-hmm. to believing that she'll be no good at all to anybody. And Chakotay gave her the chance, which is why he's the only person that maybe these Maquis will listen to because these Maquis, Starfleet or not, are the only ones that Chakotay has given a chance to any kind of respect. And, and I love this idea. I love the idea of giving somebody a chance and letting them grow to match the challenge, letting them grow into the role. I just also look at it and go, well, wait, a few hours ago, you broke somebody's nose. <laughs> and, you true. know, uh, uh, so does that, if you're somebody else working in that department, and to be fair, at the very end, Janeway does say, hey, I've already gotten two complaints from people, you know, uh, well, complaining about my decision to uh, to promote Bellana Torres, you know, not not directly complaints about Torres, but about the decision, which again is perfectly fair, because if I'm one of those other crewmen, I'm thinking, hmm, do do I have somebody who I can trust in the role above me? Or if I speak out, if I have a contrary opinion, it am I gonna get my nose broken too? Because I would not expect well, here- that from a Starfleet officer who maybe had gone through the same training that I have. The interesting thing, and I, I think that the um, a fact that we shouldn't gloss over, is that Kerry wasn't chief engineer. Right. Yep. Chief engineer yep. died, yep. you know, in the explosion. So basically he's kind of engineer de facto just because there's no other chief officer in that position. Yep. So he's he's not even legitimately in a command position to command anybody because he's not the chief of that department per yeah. se. He just inherited the department because he was – just the next senior ranking officer. Mm-hmm. But um, I kind of wanted to turn this around a little bit um, and, and, and focus on if there's supposed to be one Starfleet crew, then why the different pit badges, mm. right? Mm-hmm. It's essentially, if, if there's supposed to be one Starfleet crew, they might as well just put the Maquis in different uniforms or just one similar colored uniform for all Maquis, you know, maybe, maybe just an all black uniform because they haven't earned the Starfleet commission. Mm. I don't really understand like why are they going with the distinction, the visual distinction of if you have pips, you're Starfleet officer. If you have the long oblong mm. bar with the rank insignia in there, you're Maquis. Yeah. Cause it, who does that help? It doesn't help <laughs> you know? It basically, yeah. it, it keeps the, the separation there. If you look at somebody and you don't really recognize them in your yeah. crew and you see that they're wearing a different rank structure than you, like literally different, not a different pit, but an actual different bar, then you're going to form an opinion about these people that you don't even know based solely on 
the visual distinction of what they're wearing. Uh, I mean, this is also speaking to kind of the weird production realities of Star Trek that everybody needs a logo. You know, like even the Borg have a logo, which it just doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, the the Maquis are displaced people. The Maquis is not an organization. They're not an academy or, uh, you know, yes, they they do operate in this quasi-military, almost like, well, depending on what they're up to that day, terrorist cells. But, you know, it, just the idea that they would slap a logo on a Starfleet uniform and that sort of answers everything is an odd choice. But here's the thing, though, and, and here's the weird tiebreaker of this this visual uh, stylization mm-hmm. or this the the way to separate the two. Tom Paris was dishonorably discharged from Starfleet, thrown into prison, joined the Maquis, but got his rank and commission back at the end of Caretaker. He wears the Starfleet insignia and yeah. pips. He is just as much a criminal as Chakotay is. Yeah. So why didn't Chakotay at the end helping save Voyager from the caretaker and putting his life on the line, literally transporting out in the last minute and destroying his own ship, not earn him the same respect of rank and privilege that Tom Paris earned? Well, and for that matter, does anybody who was in the Maquis... Well, okay, look, if we're going to give an excuse to Tom Paris, we can say he was a Maquis for like a matter of hours, (laughs) you know, and a bad one at that because he was was not very good at it. Uh, (laughs) So so his background really is Starfleet in that respect. So Chakotay was an officer. So but here's the thing. Are you going around to these people and you're saying like, okay, now you're on a Starfleet ship. You no longer even have a Maquis ship and there is no Maquis to go back to because we're 70,000 light years away from everything. Now we're going to give you this nice uniform. We're going to give you this nice comm badge. So we're always in touch and we know where you are. By the way, uh, you get to choose if you differentiate yourself with this uh, thing that singles you out as, you know, this criminal, essentially, in the eyes of Starfleet, or you could not do that. And I I think I might be Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you know what? I'm outnumbered here. I think maybe I'll not do that. If they figure out that I was my key, fine. But now the job is just to get home. Yeah, exactly. One other thing, though, that I really, really liked in this episode, and I know that it's probably not as focused on maybe in in this episode or or future episodes, I don't know, but I really do like Kess's sensitivity with the doctor. It just really stood out to me that in the A story, you have, you know, Janeway's growth and Balana's growth, etc. But then you have this really wonderful quiet moment with Kess asking the doctor what his name Mm -hmm. was. You know, knowing and and trying to personalize him and treat him something other than being just ones and zeros, actually treating him like a sentient being. I think that's really important, and I'm really interested to see where that goes. There's an innocence there that's really nice because we don't know a whole lot about the Ocampa evolution. We don't know a whole lot about their technical ability because, you know, so much was given to them by the caretaker. This is sort of happened. They just sort of live their lives there. But she has this innate curiosity uh, that makes her a little different from the rest of those poor doomed Ocampa, who I I feel very badly about still. I don't don't think it's going to be a good future for them. But 
everybody else is essentially introduced to the idea because they're a Starfleet, because they're on the ship, like, oh, look, this is a piece of technology that we have. This is a thing that we can turn on and off like a light switch because our doctor is dead. That is the tool. This defines what this thing is. She gets to come at it from a completely different perspective, completely different understanding. Look, here's something that I can interact with. Here's, you know, mm-hmm. here's someone who has a personality as prickly as it may be. And it's a really lovely way to approach the unknown. And it's a very Star Trek way to approach the unknown. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the, the interesting thing is, is that she being the outsider, uh, the only other true outsider aside from Neelix, she is the one that humanizes the doctor and actually gives him the time of day, quote unquote, where Harry's too busy or Tom's too busy or the bridge is too busy or the captain's too busy mm-hmm. to literally fix the only doctor they have on the ship during a period of crisis that's affecting the physicality of yeah. the crew. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, don't you think he would be priority number one, like get our doctor back to full form? You would think, yeah, you would think there would be a whole crew working on that. Punching your way through is so predictable. What would have happened if they needed to breakdance their way through? Well, here we are, John, at the end of Episode 2 of Voyager. And it's just a pair of us. A pair of us guys talking about parallax. <laughs> Doesn't really... I don't do it nearly as <laughs> as entertainingly as you do. But maybe that joke, like 47... Uh, has been just played out. That does, might times. be the end of it. Yeah. yeah. And it is so, the end of it, fortunately, for us and for all of you. <laughs> it is. So as we do in all of our episodes of Mission Log Voyager is no different. We're going to take a look at one, does this episode hold up for John and myself? And two, what are the morals and meanings and messages that we're able to find, if any, at the end of our deliberation? And I think we were able to land on a few, but I'm really, really interested to see, first of all, being the second episode that we've watched so far in Voyager, how does this episode hold up for you? I This is one of those episodes that is good, but it's not great. It, it is definitely a departure from where we've been with DS9 since this is the most straightforward kind of there's a problem and we have to solve it sort of plot. You know, and and that was very common when you're talking about uh, TOS or TNG or some early DS9. But, you know, we, we've been in this late DS9 period where it's all about drama, politics, etc. This is an episode that is heavy on technobabble, which I'm fine with when you're using an analogy like the ice on the pond to, you know, break through that. But we had, as you pointed out, Norman, two, two big chunks of exposition. You know, the the choice I have to make at the end, the real Voyager or the reflection of Voyager, that felt a bit like manufactured drama. And then it's just sort of dropped. Like, like, did we really feel Torres learning something there, respecting Janeway's decision or Janeway learning something about Torres and that? Like, it, it was just sort of drama for drama's sake, you know? Mm-hmm. There are character moments to be found, but even then not particularly revelatory ones. So 
what's odd, you know, again, to me is just the speed of getting Bolana promoted, even after her tense meeting with Janeway and breaking Carrie's nose. And, you know, the doctor adds a little bit of comedic relief, but then those video effects don't exactly hold up. <laughs> no, they do not. <laughs> they don't. And, and honestly, you know, this is an episode that I do not remember from my last rewatch of the series. And at the same time, I felt like as soon as the transmission started, that that we started hearing coming from the singularity. I mean, uh, back in Act One, I knew it was Voyager, and I knew it would be some kind of time distortion. Like it just mm-hmm. felt very obvious to me. So I'll tell you what I think this episode does do well, in the same way that like the Naked Now on TNG, that was not a great episode when you take it out of context. It does allow us, though, to just mostly kind of sit with these new characters that we're getting used to. We get to be with them for a moment. We get to know them bit by bit. For that, the episode is a success, but I I, I can't really confidently say that it holds up Mm -hmm. because if all I'm getting out of it is Belana gets promoted, a problem was solved, okay, well, so Bolana presumably will just have that rank for the rest of the series now. So, okay, that that was just a matter of mechanics to get us there, you know. Yeah. So it's not that there's anything particularly wrong with the episode. It's just it's something that won't really hold high esteem for me. Uh, what about you, sir? Wait, so um, just to understand, so the Naked Time or the Naked Now, this mm-hmm. is the TNG episode, so... We're not supposed to believe that polywater intoxication affects an android's biological <laughs> circuitry? Oh, he was fine. He was fine the whole time. <laughs> I have so many questions about how that works. But anyway, uh, that's not this. We're talking about Voyager. Yeah. We're talking about Parallax. Uh, this is kind of like like literally like the shakedown episode. I mean, how mm. many times did people get flung across the bridge every single time they tried to pull away from so often. You know, the anomaly? Yeah. Uh, but a lot of characters were kind of like, again, like, figuratively shaken into place like Janeway started to be shaken into the the style that I think that we're we're coming to actually know very quickly from the way that Kate performs Janeway and all these different elements of the crew like the Maquis trying to like shake up the you know the the normality of how a ship functions with this hint of uh, uh, mutiny you know with Seska and Javen I think that's his name Javen or Javen mm-hmm. With Chakotay, where did Chakotay's you know, loyalties lie? Uh, he really wants to help the captain, but the captain's looking down her nose, her Starfleet nose, at the lesser than Maquis. You know, until the very, very, very end, where I think that she's trying to make amends by. I think that's what Belana is in this episode. She's kind of like a peace offering to both sides, saying that we can still play in the same sandbox mm-hmm. and and do right by each other. It just takes the first person to admit that. And that first person to admit it has to be the captain, Yeah, you know, to say that I was wrong. So it was a nice, I think that Bellana was a nice olive branch uh, to it. And the characters that you know, are starting to shape up a little bit. Now, Roger Beltran, I think his performance is Robert. is like Robert, uh, Robert, yeah, Robert yeah, Beltran. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, He's, he, I think he's found Chakotay's voice. I think Bellana is, st- um, uh, it's still a little rough. You know, mm-hmm. uh, still trying to find um, Roxanne, still trying to find, you know, who Bellana is or how the half human and half Klingon work. So I like the growth that we're seeing in a lot of these characters and where they're going. I still think that maybe Garrett's a little stodgy, a little stiff in his mm. role, but I think that's just because going all the way back to what Janeway said in Caretaker, you know, at ease 
Yeah. Send, or else you're going to spray in something. So maybe he's yeah, just yeah. leaning into that a little too much. And he's so, the kid. He's the kid. Yeah. You know, he's, really, he's the yeah, new one, yeah, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, to the industry. I think that you're right. The 100% right on the doctor effects. Uh, I'm sure that they were fine for then, <laughs> but they really, really, really date the episode. I mean, they yeah. are bad. Yeah. Let's just be honest. You know, yeah. they are terrible effects. And it, they don't, they kind of pull you out of the comedic aspect of what the doctor's going through because what he's actually going through is really bad <laughs> in the course of what he needs to do for the crew. He can't treat anybody, you know, yeah. uh, in this episode because of the way his physicality is or lack thereof. So I think that it's just. It's growing pains. We're, we're going through the mm-hmm. growing pains of the show, trying to figure out who these characters are, what their motivations are, what the voices are for these characters. I'm sure we haven't landed on exactly the the cruising speed for sure. a lot of them. I think Tom's still a little keyed up. I think that Robbie's still playing him just a little too on the nose. Um, I, I think that, say, someone like Anelix, yeah, it was a weird thing that he did with Kess, you know, yeah. especially since... Kess is far younger yeah, and yeah. probably far more naive. And he took kind of like the creepy older boyfriend type of routine with her there. But but I will say that, you know, what's interesting about Kess is that, yes, the Ocampa are short-lived and, and they have this uh, naivete, the, this innocence about them. Kess as a character, though, has this great poise and ease Mm-hmm. Which is really nice to see, uh, particularly right. as a contrast to Neelix, because he's so kind of, you know, uh, designed to be comedic. But but Cass, and, and as embodied here by Jennifer Lean, has this, um, has this real sort of calming effect where she feels like she belongs there, you know? She has a very old soul yeah. uh, aspect to her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, where Neelix is just kind of like, you know a spinning top just bouncing around from bumper to bumper to bumper which is probably why it's even more annoying to see a scene like that the (laughs) the the mansplaining scene with her you know you see tammy yeah yeah. so because you feel like you could just literally hand her like oh here read this pad on it and she was like oh i get it now you know whereas neelix is like he's the one who needs the uh the the explanation the condescending explanation um okay but what so to me this is an episode that like i said has some character moments that are that are good and necessary uh but it is also a heavy techno babble here's the problem solve the problem episode so do you pick up messages morals meanings in this well, there's definitely, uh, and, and maybe it's because in, in, in a former life, uh, I had to manage a lot of people. So in, in my former career, uh, 21 years as a graphic designer, 17 of those was at the director position, a creative director position. And managing people, this is, this is the moral that I landed on, mm-hmm. management 101. <laughs> managing people is a lot more than just assigning the right person for the right job. Now, that's academic, and it works most of the time, but it's also about finding the right fit, you know, making sure people and personalities are in the right place, challenging each other, you know, at the same time, uh, being able to get a lot of personal growth and motivation out of that person, not coddling their expectations, Mm -hmm. but empowering those expectations to see who's going to benefit from solving the problem without micromanaging somebody or overseeing somebody because you just don't think that they are as good as the the responsibility that you've thrust upon them. So 
that's where I think Janeway was with Kess early on. Like, you want the job? Take the job. Your idea? You run with it. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens. Let's see if you can actually do something for the crew. Where, uh, in contrast to that, with with Torres, see, Torres is still Maquis <laughs> and Kess wasn't. So she's looking still looking down from Starfleet on high yeah. and saying, how can these people function if they don't have the discipline and the training to do so? So that's a little bit of a juggling act there. I like how, uh, as a moral meaning or message, I like how Janeway examines that about herself in this episode. And I think she does that by the exposition of let's talk this out. Let's try and find a solution to the problem. And in doing so, warp particles. No, in doing doing so, you know, I had to do it. You did. (laughs) They found a bridge to understanding this miscommunication that there is probably globally across the ship where people... They want to do the right thing because who doesn't want to go home versus the only people that are qualified to do it on the ship are the people that are trained mm-hmm. to do it for Starfleet. That doesn't necessarily hold true. Talent is talent. And being able to spot talent and put talent in the right place, that's the sign of a good leader. That's not necessarily the sign of a trained leader or a leader that has to follow the book or protocol. That's somebody who's like Chakotay. is like, she's the best damn engineer I've ever had, ever right? That's just spotting talent and using using that talent to its full ability. So I like that there are underdogs that are being fought for and the talent is going to start presenting itself because when you don't really have a lot of resources, the cream rises to the top really fast. So that's that's kind of like where I, I landed with this episode. Uh, yes, a lot of growing pains, mm-hmm. a lot of feeling itself out still, a lot of fruit that needs to be shaken off the tree to find the, the low-hanging fruit to pick. But mm-hmm. in the end... I think that it's really about managing expectations. How about you, John? Yeah, I'm not far off from where you are because I I feel like this is – it's still testing the waters for everybody. And it's not like there's a huge moral dilemma for Janeway to face here or really anybody else in the crew. But they do have to pull together. They have to work together. They have to solve the problem. And they're still feeling each other out for where they all fit. And, you know, it just happens that this crew is made up of people from these vastly different sets of experiences. And, yeah, every crew, you know, go back to the Enterprise D, made up of people with different experiences. But for the most part, they are all there with that Starfleet background. They all have at least somewhat similarly aligned reasons for being there. This one's different. They're all trying to figure out and feel their way around uh, uh, how they will come together as a crew. But I I do, you know, right along the lines with where you are, I, I feel like there's this message of not underestimating the people around you. Janeway has to set aside her prejudice. You you spell it out very clearly, uh, you know, that she is prejudiced about the people on her crew who are Maquis. Now, they're not particularly making it easy for her um, because, as you also pointed out, yeah, you got Maquis logos, uh, rank pips on you, and, and then you've got a couple of people openly talking about mutiny, <laughs> you know? So, but at the same time, Janeway has to show a little bit of trust and meet them halfway. Carrie's got to put aside his uh, prejudice. Uh, Bellana has got to put aside her prejudice about what this is all about and who these people are and and what the reality is as opposed to her not fitting in with uh, with her experience at the Academy. 
There's also something really interesting and revealing about Bellana's own kind of self-sabotage, which I, I wonder if that sort of thing will play out later in the series for her, because that that is that's a chunk of her life that she told herself she was not cut out for. She did everything herself to remove any opportunity that she had at Starfleet. And uh, those moments were touched on too much, but it was nice to see Janeway kind of come back at her with a little more factual information to get her to be a little more introspective. But point is, they start to put aside these prejudices so they can actually get the job done. And then, you know, I'm left with this question that I still have. Can someone grow into a role that's given them? It it remains to be seen exactly how Bellana will grow into that role. And what we know is the production reality that the character is there. Was this just a little bump in the road or is this something that informs the character from here on out? There's something very gratifying about seeing somebody who is seemingly unlikely given a chance. I will still ask myself, what is the right balance? What is the right balance between talent and knowledge versus composure and leadership ability? Which one outweighs the other to put the right person in the role? Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows in the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, time and again. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Two ships diverged in the woods, and I chose the one that I thought I might be able to land on. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.